You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. And welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody had a great weekend and uh, you're coherent on this Monday. Um... I don't know what it is about sitting in a cubicle all day that makes my soul die, but, um, you know, I deal with it because it allows me to get money to pay my bills and my job's pretty, my boss is cool cause he's, he, uh, he's flexible with my hours. So that's a plus. And, uh, I also get like five weeks vacation cause I've been there so long. So that's a plus. So guaranteed three of those weeks are going to some form of hunting, which I should be thankful for because I know a lot of guys who have been working longer in, in jobs than I have and, uh, only get like a week of vacation, maybe two weeks. So I'm blessed. But today we have something a little different. I just got done recording a podcast. Uh, see right now it's Sunday night, but this is going to launch Monday morning. I just got done recording, um, a pot or, uh, a bow review podcast and that is going to play after this hunter profile podcast that we're about to do so um yeah so you're going to get a little bit extra today um the hunter profile podcast is with a guy named adam carter he lives in arkansas and every three years he goes to canada to hunt mule deer and elk so that's that that podcast is going to be cool to listen to. Really cool story there. And then we're also going to be talking with a guy named Zane from Michigan. And Zane uh, reviewed the T24 Gearhead again, the Gearhead T24. So we can get another perspective on that bow. You know that bow um, that we talked about last week that has the real short axle to axle on it. So you're getting a hunter profile podcast today, and you're getting. Uh, a bow review, just a, a one bow bow review at the end of the uh, at the end of the podcast. So stick around for that. Um, so first, thanks for tuning in. Second, I got to give a shout out to Exodus Trail Cameras. And um, if you guys are interested in uh, finding out more about Exodus Trail Cameras, make sure you guys go to exodusoutdoorgear.com. And if you end up purchasing a trail camera, go ahead and enter 
nine fingers when you're checking out the number nine followed by the word fingers no space and uh, it will allow you to uh, get $20 off your purchase so that's pretty good so there's that happy Monday and let's get right into these two podcasts all right on the show with me is Adam Carter how's it going today Adam I'm doing pretty well Good. Well. Good. So, uh, before we get into, you know, this is kind of a hunter profile podcast, but we're going to talk a, a, about a, a couple different animals and a little bit about where you live in Arkansas and just a whole bunch of different questions about the style, you know, how you hunt and whatnot. But, uh, before we, before we get into that, why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, who you are and what you do for a living, maybe talk about your family a bit. Sure. Uh, I live in Little Rock, Arkansas. work at the University of Arkansas for medical science. I am the fitness coordinator in the fitness center there at the university. So my job is kind of just overseeing the different fitness programs that we offer. And then I occasionally will do fitness-related uh, lectures to try and educate our memberships and uh, help them, uh, hopefully equip them to make uh, smarter and healthier choices for themselves. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I, I need to take some of your advice. <laughs> well, be happy to help you out if I can. <laughs> and uh, what's your uh, – you're a family man. Why don't you go talk a little bit about your family? Sure. I've been married to my wife for eight years. Uh, we've got a four-year-old boy who uh, is an avid t-ball player. Uh, we had a, a scrimmage last night. We start our games uh, next week with that. He uh, – He's quite the little slugger. He's four years old, and he's quite a bit bigger than most of the other kids because he turns five about three weeks after our season ends. Okay. Well, that's good. Uh, is, is he enjoying uh, sports so far? Oh, yeah. He loves it. We uh, we do practice one practice one game a week during the season, and then we usually are playing catch or doing batting or something a couple times a week the rest of the year. Okay. So – your wife, you've known her, you, you've been married to her for eight years. Uh, and we're going to, yes. we're going to be talking a little bit about, um, uh, a couple Western hunts that you, uh, that you go on, but, um, is she okay with you taking long trips or because of the circumstances, uh, is the family coming with you? Um, in the past, the family has come with me, um, in 2009 and 2012, uh, we did those trips over the weekend of Thanksgiving in November. And so we took the whole family up to my parents' house in Alberta. And, uh, my dad, my brother, and I would go hunting while my wife and son hung out at the house with, uh, with my mom and sister. Okay. And so she's, she's okay with it. This, uh, past year with the elk hunt I did back in September, that was the first time that I, uh, I did the trip by myself. And that was the longest trip I've done. I was on that trip for 10 days. And uh, she's a teacher, so she couldn't take that time off uh, in September to do that trip. I got gotcha. you. Well, before we talk a little bit about your Western, I guess you want to call your Western trip. It's almost like a Northern trip for you. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about where, where you hunt in Arkansas. I take it there's whitetails there. Um, there is, yeah. Are you are, are the numbers good? Are you a bow hunter? Are you a gun hunter? What's your what's your whitetail story? Um, I uh, in Arkansas, I exclusively bow hunt. I pretty much put down my rifle uh, for whitetails in Arkansas. I've been uh, 
been fortunate that uh, I work as a personal trainer on the side outside of my job at the hospital, and I have a client who uh, has given me permission on his ranch just outside Boulder Rock area to bow hunt out there. Oh, nice. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a great spot. Uh, he and his kids live out there, so it's bow hunting only, uh, just for the sake of safety since they're living on the ranch. But I've been doing that since the fall of 2011. Perfect. And I would I would say I'm still a novice when it comes to bow hunting. I've only managed to to kill three deer with my bow so far, uh, but I love the challenge of it. That's why I got into it. Right. So what what are the on this ranch? I mean, how many acres is this ranch that you hunt? Um, obviously, it's private, and so it's limited exposure to hunters. But um, what are the numbers like? Is there good quality deer there as far as uh, age and size are concerned? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's got a lot of deer on it. It is, uh, it's bordered by state parkland on two sides. So the deer come out of the state parkland on the private property and they do all their feeding in the food plots that are on the ranch. Oh, and then they bed yeah. in the park. So, uh, <laughs> is there hunting in that park? No, 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 there's no hunting in the park. So these are very well protected deer. Wow. So you got a primo setup. Yeah, I, uh, I've got a lot of great luck, uh, coming into that setup. So, uh, the way, the way I hunt that is the food plots are, uh, are close to the houses. So they don't allow us to hunt right over top of the food plot. So I set up in the woods a couple hundred yards back off the food plot, uh, and, and, uh, away from the, the boundary with the state park line there. Okay. And I just, I intercept them as they come out of the food plot or as they come out of bedding to go into the food plot. Nice. So you're, you're hunting a transition area. Transition. Yeah. I'm, yeah. It's a, it's a Oak Ridge top transition area is what I primarily hunt when I'm on that ranch. Okay. Is now is, um, what's the quality of bucks like there? Um, that is probably the, the one area I would love to see improvement. Um, there are the bucks are few and far between. The bow or the the doe to buck ratio is is quite skewed in favor of a high concentration of does. Uh, there's only uh, this year I only saw two bucks that I would consider shooter bucks. Um, and when I when I say shooter bucks, it's got to be something bigger than what I have on the wall already. And right now my biggest white tail is a 125. Okay. So uh, yeah, I saw. I saw two this season that I would consider shooters, and uh, depending on the hunt, I'd see anywhere from eight to twenty does at a time in a in a typical two or three hour sit. I gotcha. So now, how many tags does uh, a bow hunter from Arkansas get throughout a year? Is it is it uh, like here in Iowa, depending on? Um, the county, because each county has a quota, and if that quota is met, then up until that quota is met, you can kill as many deer as you want. But as soon as that quota is met, then it's, you know, as far as does are concerned, it's it's game over. Right. Uh, with with the Arkansas residence license, you uh, you get six deer tags with that that you can use statewide. And then the state is broken up into different zones depending on what area you're in. Uh, the area where I where I bow hunt right around the Little Rock area, you can take four deer a year in this zone, but up to six statewide. So if I got four in one year in the zone here around Little Rock, then I'd have to travel to a different part of the state if I wanted to tag out completely. Are those any sex tags, or do you get 
uh, one buck and the rest are doe tags? Uh, there's a statewide limit of two bucks per year. Okay. And then depending on what deer zone you're in in the state, there may be a one buck limit for that particular zone. Uh, this this zone around Little Rock allows you to take two bucks within it, okay. or, it or it allows you to take up to four does. Gotcha. And uh, does the landowner who lets you bow hunt on that piece of property, do they hunt as well? Um, he does not. His sons that live out there with him, they do. So okay. there's only, as far as I know, I'm the only one who is not family that hunts the property. So there's only about three or four of us hunting this 400 acres. I got you. Now, is there any, I know it's on, on two sides of you is, uh, how big, how big is this piece of property? Uh, it's about 400 acres. Okay. Um, so the deer have, well, the deer are the deer, I guess, what, what am I trying to say? The deer on both sides are protected and then they funnel into your property. Now to the North and the South of this 400 acres, it, are there, uh, other hunters? Um, there's not to the South because there's a river to the South. Okay. And then, and then across the river is, uh, is private property owned by someone else. Okay. So what about to the North then? Uh, to the north, the north and west sides are the sides of the property that are bordered by the parkland. Okay. okay. So then, to the east, it's other more pr private property. Yeah. To the east, it's uh, private property owned by other people. Okay. Man, I don't know. I don't know. That scenario just sounds like it could be managed to be something great if you had the time and energy and, I guess, resources to do it. Yeah, it, it really could. Um, the deer numbers are definitely high, and uh, the buck numbers are, are slowly starting to come up. I saw a lot of two-and-a-half-year-old bucks that ran around that I, at this point, I'm not interested in shooting something that young. I'd rather let it walk and get there. Um, but they, there's definitely a lot of potential on that property, especially you know considering it's in Arkansas, and Arkansas is not necessarily known for being a, a huge uh, state when it comes to trophy quality of deer. Right. Right. But you no, know, my point of, my point of thinking is, okay, you just said there's a ton of two-year-olds running around and you're not going to shoot two-year-olds. You know, if you could maybe convince some of the other people that hunt that farm and that would be hard to do because it's their farm that, uh, you know, Hey, if you, if we want to kill something, let's kill as many does as we, as our tags would allow. And then maybe shoot, you know, put a hit list together. And I, for some reason, I just, you know, the, what, the way you've explained this property to me, um, and you know, I'm not here to say or judge you or the, the landowners of what they're doing because everybody has the right to shoot and kill what they want. But for me, the way I look at it is, holy cow, you know, bordered on three sides by, you can't hunt on three sides of it, basically, unless, you know, the deer cross the river. It just, it just seems like an awesome advantage for the hunter. It, it is an awesome advantage. And, uh, you know, if, if it was my land, I would definitely have a pretty strict quality management program going on there. Um, and I would, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely be trying to manage that to turn it into a real quality trophy property. Uh, but it, it's, you know, that's unfortunately, uh, I'm just a guest there. And so I go with whatever their policies are and just be you know, happy to have the opportunity. That's right. There's only so much you can do. Yeah, yeah. There's only so much you can do. Uh, so I, I, I'm right in line with your thinking there. And uh, in my own mind, and how I approach hunting the property, 
I, I very much agree with you. And that's kind of my mental approach to, to what I'm looking for to get out of it as a hunting experience. Perfect. Now, do you help them put in those food plots? How, how big are some of those food plots that they're putting in? Um, they've got one field, uh, that they, that I believe is about four acres of corn typically. And then they've got another field that's two to three acres that they alternate between doing, uh, Milo and Clover. Okay. So they got, uh, uh, early season, it sounds like an early season plot. And then the corn is, you know, mid to late season. Um, how fast do the deer go through those food plots? Um, surprisingly, uh, not that fast. There's typically, there's typically, uh, corn available, uh, to them right up to the end of season, which I forgot to mention, uh, we were talking about Arkansas hunting rules. The archery season here is very generous. Uh, it typically starts the last Saturday of September and goes to the end of February. Holy smokes. So you, yeah. your, your deer hunting season literally just got over last, uh, like the beginning of last month. Yeah, I I went out the first Saturday in March and took down my ground blind and got my tree stand down out of the woods. Man, that is crazy. There's a couple other southern states, I believe, that it it lasts up, up until like the first of March. Yeah, it's it's crazy. But uh, that was actually why I got into bow hunting to begin with, is I was a college student here in Arkansas, and the gun season at the time was only about three weeks. And I looked at the regs and said, "Well, I can buy a bow and hunt for five months instead of three weeks." So, right. Uh, Right. That got me into it. So, all right. That's, uh, I mean, do you do any turkey hunting out there as well? Is there turkey on the uh, farm? Uh, I have never seen turkey out there. Um, I, I love to go, but I didn't grow up turkey hunting and really have no clue how to do that. So I haven't really gotten into it. Gotcha. It's pretty easy. I'll tell you that. Um, I, all you got to do is really, they're not the smart. I mean, they have great eyes. And they're kind of wily at times, but when they're on, it, I mean, you could squeak a, a, you know, a rusted car door and they would come into it. Huh. Yeah, I've heard that. And it seems to be that way from watching a few hunting shows, but I've just never taken the time to go out and try to do it for myself. Right. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about Alberta. All right. Yeah. So were you born in Canada and moved to the States or did your parents leave and go up there to live? Uh, I was actually born in California. And uh, when I was three, my parents moved up to Victoria, British Columbia, which is just across the border from Seattle, Washington. Yep. And grew up there. Uh, and then we moved down to Texas after I graduated from high school. And that's how I ended up going to college in Arkansas and met my wife whole I was going to school here. She's in Little Rock Native, so we live here to be close to her side of the family. Yeah, yeah. All right. So that's your that's your map, as as I yeah. would say. So then your parents, when did they? I guess when did they move to Alberta? They moved uh, back to Alberta from Texas in two thousand six. Okay. So. And that, all right. Okay. So you were. Um, already married when they moved back up there, right? Uh, my wife and I were dating. We married okay. in 2008. Gotcha. So since they moved up to Alberta, how many times have you been up there to hunt? Um, I have been up there four times now. Our, our elk hunt this past September was the fourth trip. 
Um, and that has to do with the way the law works for non-resident hunters in Alberta. Okay. Um, How does that uh, work? Well, as a non-resident uh, coming up from the States, there's only two options as far as uh, hunting in Alberta. You either have to hire a professional guide and go with a fully outfitted hunt, uh, or you have to participate in the hunter host program, which is uh, how we do it with my dad and my brother and myself. Uh, and the way that works is every three years, uh, a resident of Alberta can act as a host guide for non-residents uh, and bring them in and, and basically just act like their guide without them having to hire a guide service. And that program is called the, the Hunter Host Program. You have to apply for that and get approved uh, before you go up there and buy licenses and everything. And typically, we go through that application process three or four months ahead of when we plan on hunting. Uh, but the, the big restriction on that is it's a once every three years, both for the host and for the hunters that are being hosted. Okay. So you, do, you won't get drawn your first three years and then on your, or you will. Work. Um, you actually you actually don't draw tags as a non-resident uh, hunter. You have to hunt on general over-the-counter tags, okay. um, which you can buy the way you the way you would uh, over-the-counter in any state here in the U.S. that offers a, an over-the-counter non-resident tag. Uh, but the big the big thing is you have to do it through that hunter host program, and you have to apply to that and be accepted to that prior to taking your trip up there and buying your tag. Okay, so, so is that all, a, is all the that a yearly? There have been, uh, no, it's it's the hunter host uh, thing is not a thing you have to apply for every year. You just apply for it uh, in the years that you're going to hunt, and then they just uh, they put a mark on your name in the system saying you're not eligible to do it again for three years. Okay. So uh, yeah, they uh, for whatever reason they only want non-resident hunters coming in once every three years. Okay. So when you said you were up there four years, or you've been up there four times, it's been four times in however many years since your dad moved up there, right? Yeah, we okay. did the first trip in the fall of 2006, which was the year he moved up there. Um, and I, I struck out an eight-tag soup on that trip. Uh, my brother ended up shooting a nice 150-inch uh, whitetail up there while we were on that first trip in 2006 and then went back in 2009 uh, and ended up just taking a doe on the last day with, with my tag. And then uh, 2012 was when we got mule deer, and then 2015 we did the elk hunt. Okay, so what kind of uh, what kind of property? I know when in, for, for some reason when I watch the uh, all the hunting shows, I I think of rolling hills and you know heavy timber, rolling hills with some you know some big hay fields or or clover fields or ag fields. What's uh, what kind of terrain are you guys hunting when you go up there? Um, we did the uh, rolling hills and ag fields like you're thinking about uh, in 2009 and 2012 when we got the mule deer. And then uh, in uh, 2006 on the first trip, we were way up in the Canadian Rockies. Okay. Uh, around, I believe around 6,000 feet up in the Canadian Rockies. Uh, and I spent the Thanksgiving day of that year 20 feet up a tree in a deer stand when it was minus 30 wind chill. <laughs> And that was that, that was in 2012. That was 2006 on oh, the first day. I gotcha. Yeah, I, I sat there for six hours, frozen minus 30 weather. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about. Um, 
I guess, the mule deer hunt because you uh, smoked a stud mule deer, and this was with a rifle, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah, uh, this was a, with a rifle in 2012. Okay. So why don't you explain as far as, the you know, let's talk a little bit about what you I mean, where you were sitting, what the temperature was like, uh, what time of year it was, and, and kind of your plan as far as, you know, did someone did because you you know didn't have a lot of time to scout up there was your dad saying okay well hey the deer are coming out of this field into here was it private ground was it public ground that kind of stuff um it was private ground in 2012 which was the only year we've done it on private ground uh, in that particular year uh, my dad happened to know the son of a guy that owned the cattle ranch that we ended up hunting on and uh he uh he had told us there was a big mule deer in the area and uh, invited us to come up and take a shot at it. And uh, we, In fact, the, uh, the guy that owned the ranch was, was so nice to us. He watched the deer go to bed in a thicket uh, that was kind of out in the middle of one of his cattle pastures the night before we got there. And so he took us right out and said, you just sit on this hillside for the first couple hours, and if he doesn't come out after a couple hours, we'll, uh, we'll see if we can go push him out of the bush and uh, kind of do a deer drive situation. Okay. And, uh, and from there, um, we sat there a couple hours. He never came out. So we ended up circling around the thicket that we thought he was in, got, uh, got downwind of that to where the wind was in our advantage and, uh, uh, set up the, my brother as a poster. And then my dad and I kind of walked through the bush to try and push him out. And he hopped out and my dad, uh, missed a shot at him. And, uh, took off running and he ran clear across the farm which was about a 600 acre cattle ranch and we got him into another thicket and uh watched him bed down there and let him relax for a little bit it's a very uh, very different style of hunting when you're when you're hunting that open prairie land like that especially uh especially if you're doing it with a gun right you know you can you can definitely reach out and touch them if they run until you know, and you can still see him through a pair of binoculars and then you can say, okay, well, he stopped running. I can see that. And then he probably tried to bed down somewhere. So I take it you, you saw him bed down or did you just circle around him again? What would happen there? Uh, we saw the thicket that he went into and we could see that he didn't come out of it. So, uh, we, we basically just circled it and sat down and, uh, and kind of waited on him to let him make his move and come out. And uh, the thicket was kind of small, so we knew he could see us kind of sitting there. And it was, we knew it would just be a matter of time before he was pressured into uh, into coming out of there. And he ended up coming out on my side, and I shot and hit him in the leg and wounded him. Uh, and so then he ran back towards where his original bed had been, which was about a half a mile away. Um, and we kind of let him bed down and rest, thinking he was going to expire. And kind of circled the thicket again, uh, waiting, waiting him out. And he ended up feeling the pressure, I guess, and coming out. And this time he, he came out on my brother's side and my brother, uh, ended up finishing him off since he was the closest hunter. I gotcha. So, so this is a team effort on that mule deer. Yeah, for sure. And he's a, and he is a big mule deer. What did he, what did he weigh? I mean, did you weigh him? What did he, what did he score? Um, we, we didn't officially score him with the Boone and Crockett score. Uh, we green scored him ourselves, and we green scored him out at 210 inches. Yeah, that mule deer and, is ridiculous. Yeah, we we guessed his live weight 
was about 350 pounds. Okay. And that that's based on getting about uh, 180 pounds or maybe almost 200 pounds of meat off of that one deer. Okay. He yeah, was, he was a monster. A yeah, it's a big. And now for the listeners, I'll have that uh, mule deer posted, the picture of that mule deer posted on the website. So just go to the uh, ninefingerchronicles.com backslash podcast and you'll uh, you'll be able to check out the pictures of not only the mule deer, but the elk, which we're going to be talking about here soon. So from Arkansas all the way up, to Alberta, were you driving or did you fly? Um, typically, we fly. I've made the drive. It's a two and a half day drive each way. If you're going to do it from Arkansas, um, and we don't do that when we're on these hunting trips, just because of time restrictions. But right. uh, um, you know, it's it's a uh, it's easier to fly. There's a couple interesting things that uh, that people don't think about since you have to cross an international border. Um, if you're going to, to gun hunt anywhere in Canada, when you go through Canadian customs, uh, because they have a little bit stricter firearm laws up there, they're going to inspect your, your, uh, firearm. And, uh, your, if you have a rifle from the, from the opening of the action to the end of the barrel, it's got to measure at least 24 inches. Uh, if you have a shotgun, it's got to me- measure at least 28 inches. And then, uh, they're going to take down your serial number on your weapons. And uh, and they'll uh, also charge you a twenty five dollar fee uh, to bring those firearms across the border into Canada. But if you take a bow up there, they don't do any of that. They don't consider, for whatever reason, there's no restrictions on that as far as bringing a bow up there if you're going to bow hunt. I gotcha. So you left Little Rock and flew. Where did you fly into in Alberta? Uh, we fly into Calgary. That's where my parents live. Okay. And then, uh, the uh, the area where we hunted um, this past fall for the elk was about an eight hour drive northwest of Calgary. Okay, and um, it's so, like Jasper National Park area. Um, it's getting up there. It's not quite that far north, uh, but okay. getting up in that general direction within a couple hours of that. Yeah. Okay, I gotcha. Now. And then where was that mule deer hunt? Was that around Calgary then, or was that in a different area? That was a couple hours east of Calgary. Okay. And I'm on a map right now, and that looks like it's more of your rolling hills, kind of like your plains. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. That's more of the rolling hills, plains type area that that you see on a lot of the hunting shows. Uh, Especially if you see someone that's in Alberta hunting mule deer, the best mule deer hunting is in the eastern part of the province. Okay, um, like the southeastern part of it. Um, well, there's a there's anywhere really along the eastern side as you get close to the border with Saskatchewan is good. Um, the big the big area where they where they say all the big deer in the province are are in what's known as the Edmonton Bow Triangle, and it's a it's a bow hunting only zone. It starts in Edmonton, which is north of Calgary, runs south to Calgary, and then runs east from there for for a little ways. Um, and kind of that triangle area that it makes uh, to the south and east with Calgary, and then and out east from there uh, is considered to be the real deer haven if you're wanting to go shoot a, a world class deer in Alberta. And that's a bow hunting only zone. Uh, yes, that yeah, is crazy. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's because there's uh, 
there's Calgary and Edmonton all on the same highway that borders that zone to the west, and there's also Red Deer, which is another fairly large city. So, yeah. wow, that's and, nice. it, and it's and it's considered to also be some of the best quality ag land in Alberta as well. So that you have the combination of the restriction to a bow, a large bow only zone, and then combined with incredible farmland that produces monster deer. So there's so there's giant mule deer running around that area. Yeah. Yeah, the the uh, the one that we got in 2012 was definitely on the bigger side, but uh, from what I've heard and talking to people that that hunt there quite frequently, uh, you know, to go up there and have a shot at a 180 mule deer is pretty reasonable if you're in that Edmonton bow zone. Okay, and then let's talk about pronghorn for a second. Are they up there as well? They're in the southern part of the province, uh, okay. kind of getting down close towards the border with Montana. Uh, I've never personally hunted pronghorn, so I I don't know much right. about that or have any have any stories about pronghorn hunting. But they are there uh, in the southern part of the province. And then what about whitetails? Are they running around over there as well? Yeah, whitetails are everywhere. Uh, like I, like I said, uh, my brother shot a 150 whitetail in 2006 on our first trip up there. Uh, my dad has shot a, a 156 whitetail up there as well, and. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, there's, there's big deer all over the place. It's, it's, uh, if you have the opportunity to hunt there, you really need to hold out for a whitetail that goes 160 is what a lot of people will tell you. And that's kind of the standard that we, we set for ourselves up there. If we're going to shoot a whitetail, we're looking for something that's going to hopefully go 160 or better. So when you, when you go up there, whether you're whitetail hunting or mule deer hunting, I mean, it, are the numbers are there very good numbers up there and then on top of that you know obviously quality how many big bucks are you seeing on your trips up there um it it varies because typically what we do when we're deer hunting we we hunt during the rut which tends to be the week of american thanksgiving okay um and so if you if you get in the right area and you're able to, to call you can you could bring in three or four deer at a time to your calls if if it gives time to rut right where they're in that seeking chasing phase. Yeah, I've had that happen, um, but it it gets challenging, especially in the eastern part of the province because it's so open, rolling field land that they can see you coming for a long ways away, and so uh, you've got to you've got to spot them and really plan a plan a stalk or a, an ambush really well to to get within range on them. I got you. So on on this uh, property that you guys were hunting, uh, a friend of your dad's, um, were you guys running trail cameras out there at all? So you knew what kind of you know quality animals were out there, or was it just a hey, let's show up and start hunting type deal? Uh, we have never run trail cameras. Um, it was just uh, we had we had the tags for the area, and uh, he had a friend called him and he said, Hey, we actually happen to have a big one on our farm. You can come try to get that one. Um, so we just showed up and, uh, got lucky and shot the deer. Nice. Okay. So it sounds to me like you got a, you got a good thing going for you. Yeah. I, I would say, uh, you, especially considering I don't own my own land to hunt. Um, I would be hunting public land all the time if I was not lucky enough to have the situation I have with my hunting here in Arkansas. Right. Uh, yeah, I've I've been very blessed to have a lot of a lot of great hunting opportunities. All right, so now we're going to change topics just a little bit. 
and uh, talk about that elk from this past year. Okay. And from the picture that you sent me, it looks like a really good elk. Um, what did it score? Did you green score um, it roughly? We we didn't green score it. I didn't have time to do that uh, before the trip was over. Um, and just, I don't think my dad's had time to, to sit down and do it. Uh, we had a, a friend with us who did the calling uh, and actually called that elk in. Um, he, he has shot, in the last six years, he's killed four six by six, six elks that are similar in size to the one that uh, you see that I got. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he told me that he thought it was probably just under 300 inches. Okay. With with that elk, uh, and he and he, he it was my first elk hunt ever. I had never done it before, and uh, and he said that's the kind of elk that someone who hunts elk every year is going to shoot if they get the chance. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's a big. That was a stud elk uh, from what the you know the pictures that you uh, sent in. But let's talk about that hunt a little bit. So this was your first elk hunt. And I had my first elk hunt this past year as well. And I have a feeling yours was just a little bit different than mine. I spent about 18 hours in a row one day uh, up in the mountains in a tent so because it was raining so bad. And you said you went there in September. So I take it you were hunting the 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 rut. Is that correct? Yeah, we were hunting the rut uh, for elk this past fall. And uh, it was a fantastic hunt. Um, this is, this elk is one of those hunts where you dream that it works out like this every time. Uh, I flew up there on a Sunday afternoon, uh, got in about five o'clock in the afternoon. We drove to the area where we were going to hunt and got there about midnight and, uh, and set up our camp and everything in the dark, slept in and, and skipped the morning hunts. We got there so late and then, uh, got up and, uh, and walked around into the bush. Uh, and it's a, uh, it was not a high altitude elk hunt, which I, which I thought it was going to be. It was a little bit different in the sense that, uh, we were going actually down into a river Valley okay. and we were coming off, coming off out of the foothills that border the Rockies. And then we'd go down into these river valleys and hunt the elk down in the valleys. Uh, we had to, uh, the, the valleys were public land, but the valleys were surrounded by, uh, ranch land that was owned by wheat and uh, wheat farmers. Okay. And so because the public land was completely surrounded by private, by law, the wheat farmers had to give you permission to go across their land to get down to the public land. Okay. Uh, However, they did not have to give you permission to drive a vehicle down through their fields. They could just say, well, I'll let you go down there, but you got to walk. And that's what ended up happening to us. Uh, we went in on the Monday evening, which was our first uh, time to go in and call for elk. And we we parked up at the field where the farm told us to stop and then walked in about, I think, about two miles down into the valley and uh, down into an area where my dad had shot a, a 5 by 5 elk in 2014. And uh, we set up and called a few times and got an immediate bugle. Uh, and we ended up having about two or two or three bulls that were bugling at us. Um, and and uh, we did one particular call sequence that just got this huge, aggressive, screaming beat, uh, bugle out of the elk that I ended up shooting. And then uh, after he bugled, everything went quiet for about 20 or 30 minutes. We, we called after a little bit of quiet and didn't get any response. It was like all the elk decided to stop responding to us. Okay. Uh, 
And then uh, my dad looked over at our friend who was doing the calling because he's a more experienced elk hunter, and he said, just do the same sequence you did that got him to respond earlier. And this was after we'd been out there for for about an hour. And so he kind of did the same kind of call sequence and immediately elk fired up. And you could tell that this time he was closer and he was getting closer. And then after that, he bugled about four or five times. And each time that he bugled, you could just tell he was getting closer and closer to us uh, as uh, as the bugling went on. And uh, we were set up on a little knob uh, on a series of these hills leading down into the valley. And the way the wind was playing, we expected him to come out down the hillside from us about 150 yards. Uh, and he didn't do that. He ended up coming straight to our calling. Uh, which surprised us, but I guess, you know, that's what elk do in the rut. If, if they're fired up right, they'll come right to you. And uh, he, he came in, uh, and I, I didn't actually get a good look at him uh, until after after I had shot. He, uh, I saw the area we were in, he had to be at least three points on one side to be a legal bull. Okay. And so I, I saw his... He was in some thick brush, and I saw antler tips over the top of the brush, and I counted three, so I knew, okay, he's legal. And then uh, he kind of went out of my sight behind uh, behind some bush for a second, and then uh, all of a sudden, I, my dad was sitting a few feet away, and I just hear him start whispering, he's huge, he's huge. <laughs> and, and I looked over at him, and his eyes were kind of big, like, like yeah, you know, that, that look you get when you see... You know, that, that right animal that just, it's the kind of thing you dream about. And at this point, I still hadn't seen him. And, and he stopped about 45 yards away through some thick brush. And uh, I had my rifle and my bow with me um, and thought about taking the shot with the bow. But all I could see was just a little corner on his shoulder. Um, and it was not, a, not an area that I felt like I could get an arrow in very comfortably because there was a few trees in the way. And I kind of looked over at my dad like, you know, what should I do? It's the it's the first evening in our hunt. We're here for ten days. My dad, my dad, kind of looked at me. He's like, "Get your gun and shoot." <laughs> <laughs> so I said, "Okay." Um, so I I shot, uh, and he he went about ten steps and started getting woozy and fell over right there. Um, <sighs> and I, I I still at this point had no idea, you know, he was as big as he was, and I didn't I didn't really know that. Uh, until we, we walked up on him a, a few minutes later and, uh, I, my jaw dropped when I saw how big, how big the elk was. Cause I'd never, never come close to shooting anything that size, uh, before with any animal. And I'd come up there with the expectation that if I matched what my dad had done the last couple of years with, with five by five elks, that I would have had a really successful hunt. Um, and, and this guy just came in perfectly on a string. It's like you see it on TV with, with the calling and the bugling and the response, and uh, uh, it it just worked out perfectly. And to have it all happen on the first night was fantastic. So, what was the what's the? I, I I'm blown away by you go out there, you kill a giant mule deer. You go up there, you kill a giant elk. I know you struck out on your first year, but it's like I'm just like I'm excited for you. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so it just sucks that you can't go up there for what? What's when's the next time you can go up there? Two thousand and eighteen. Yeah, fall two thousand and eighteen will be the next time we make this trip again to Alberta. So what are you going to do next time when you head up there? 
Um, I would say, you know, having had the opportunity to, to take white tails and mule deer and elk, uh, I'm going to elk hunt on, on this particular trip. It's going to take a lot of convincing to tell me to do something other than go hunt elk in the rut if I have the opportunity. Right. Okay. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, I, I just love the, uh, I, I, I didn't hear anything really close, but I heard a ton of, um, you know, I, I heard, a, I heard some bugling in the distance, nothing real close, but it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Especially it sounds like, uh, they got, you heard some really aggressive bugling up close too. Uh, we, we did, um, the last bugle he did, um, and he, he was still in thick brush to where I hadn't really seen him, but he was only about 60 yards from us when he let a, a bugle just rip. And, and it, I mean, you could almost get this sense that the the trees and the grass around us were shaking with the force of this bugle. So it was so so loud and powerful. Cool, cool, cool. So you're you're going to do? I mean, Alberta, from my understanding, has just about every animal that you want that a person could want to hunt right i mean they have mountain goats they have sheep they have uh pronghorn i mean is there anything else on your list of uh things to do um i would love to do moose and we actually tried to do that on this past trip as well the uh the area we were in for elk had an archery only uh moose season going on at the same time and so i took my I took my bow up with the hopes of getting a, a chance at a moose uh, with the bow. And uh, we ended up, on the, on the very first morning, we went out for a late start in the morning because we slept in that first morning. And we hadn't walked 200 yards down a trail into one of these valleys, and we jumped a, a big moose out of its bed. Oh, boy. And uh, I had my bow in hand. I had an arrow knocked. And it bolted out of its bed, and it took about a 70-yard run through the woods and then stopped. And it, it kind of it was facing dead away from us. I didn't have a shot, uh, unfortunately. Um, and it kind of looked back over its shoulders at us, trying to figure out where we were. So I drew back. I ranged him, got the distance of about 67 yards, dialed my sight into 67, and, uh, and drew back, hoping he would complete that turn and go broadside. And, I've been practicing all summer long, shooting out to 80 yards, and was it was comfortable with anything with anything under 80 yards. I could confidently make a shot on a on a broadside animal as large as a moose. And unfortunately, he he didn't make that turn. He uh, kind of looked over his shoulder at us and then trotted off and went into bush so thick that we couldn't see him. Man. So I would I would love to go back and get him get a moose. Uh, whether it's with a with a rifle or a bow, the, the hunt moose would be the next one on my list for sure. Gotcha. So um, one thing we didn't talk about is going up there, and I, got, I have a couple more questions for you. One, I'll, I'll, I'll just ask this one first. During your off-season, or your off-years going up to Alberta, have you put any thought into maybe doing some other western hunts like in you know like Colorado or Wyoming or any – Western hunts for elk or mule deer? Uh, I hadn't in the past, but after this first elk hunt this past September, I definitely want to do that. I don't, I don't want elk hunting for me to be a once every three years thing. Uh, unfortunately, it's probably going to be 2018 before I have a chance to do another trip like that because uh, I'm starting a master's degree this summer, and that's going to be taking up a lot of my free time over the next 
a couple years to wrap that up. You need to get but your priorities uh, straight, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So yeah. the, the next question is what does it cost? I mean, obviously the flight is not going to be cheap, but once you get up there in Canada and you, you've applied for your, uh, you know, your, uh, partnership tag or your, whatever that's called, uh, it's Hunter host, Hunter host program. Um, is that, is there a cost associated with that to apply? Uh, the Hunter host is free. There's no charge to the non-resident or the resident hunter. Um, however, there's a lot of fees associated with the specific tag that you buy. Okay. Um, the first, the first thing you have to buy is what's called a win card, which is a wildlife identification number. Uh, that's fairly cheap. It's only about 15 bucks, and that's valid for five years from the date of purchase. But you have to have that as a resident or a non-resident to buy any kind of hunting or fishing license in Alberta. Um, so you went, the, you went up there, and you got your... Uh... Uh, you got your win card, and then that allowed you to purchase your licenses and tags, right? It, it did after the – you've got to have the win card uh, before you do the Hunter Host program because you've got to supply that number to them on the Hunter Host application. Uh, and then uh, once once you get the Hunter Host process approved, um, which uh, you got to do the Hunter Host thing about three to four months ahead of when you plan on hunting to give the, the government time to process it and approve it. The wing card you actually have to order, and you I think you can do it online, but you've got to get that about six weeks prior to any hunter-host application since you've got to have that number for the hunter-host application uh, because they have to send you the physical card in the mail, and that's up to a six-week waiting period. So. If you're going to do this kind of hunt in Alberta, you've got to start planning it out at least the minimum of five to six months ahead of the actual hunt date to make sure you get all your paperwork and stuff processed on time and can get it all done legally. Okay. Uh, so once you go ahead, I was just going to say uh, once you've gotten the hunter, you've gotten your win card, you've done your hunter host application, that's been approved. Um, you have to buy what's called a wildlife certificate, uh, which is kind of just a, a general fee they charge all hunting uh, all hunters to uh, come, uh, to kind of help out with the conservation effort of Alberta. Uh, for a non-resident like myself, that wildlife certificate costs sixty-eight dollars and twenty-two cents for the 2015 season, and then. Uh, my non-resident elk tag was two ninety one thirty. Uh, the moose tag was three ten thirty, and then I also had to buy a bow hunting permit, which was about thirty five bucks, I believe. Okay, so you're sitting at you're sitting at close to eight and some dollars just for uh, fees and license and tags. Uh, because I went with the elk and the moose tag, it was closer to a thousand bucks. I believe okay. is what the final cost came out to, just on tags. Gotcha. And then what about, what was the mule deer hunt when you went out there? Um, I believe the, the mule deer hunt was cheaper. I believe those tags that year were about 180. All right. But that's for, that's for a single tag on each of those animals, is those prices I gave you. So is uh, a bow license cheaper than a rifle tag, or is it just the same? Uh, there's no... There's no price difference based on the species that you're buying the tag for, uh, but bow hunters do have to pay for that extra bow hunting permit. 
Okay. When I'm like, so that's about thirty-five bucks, I believe. Okay. Pennies, you know, that's small, small potatoes when you think about the rest of the dollar amount that you're spending. Um, yeah. And then on top of that, what was you know what was your uh, pl- uh, ticket up there? The airline ticket. Uh, I believe the airline ticket round trip was just under a thousand dollars. Okay, so you're putting in, you know, you're investing two thousand dollars at least into this trip just to get up there, and I take it you at least got a free night to stay at your parents' house, and maybe your um, your mom or dad cooked you a meal. Um, well, actually, on this particular trip, just the way the travel arrangements worked out, I never went to their house. I flew into Edmonton, which is about three hours north of Calgary where they live. And my dad picked me up at that airport. We headed straight out to the area. We hunted and then uh, went straight back to the airport on the way back. Okay. Did manage, did manage to have lunch with my mom on a on a layover in Calgary when I switched planes, uh, but that was the only chance I got to see her on that particular trip. All right. So are you excited to go back? Oh, yeah. I would... I mean, I, I love hunting of any kind that I get the chance to do, um, but there is always a special anticipation uh, looking forward to these Alberta trips. Uh, and not just because of the location. I mean, the location and the opportunities to hunt different species other than what I can hunt in Arkansas is always fantastic. But the opportunity to hunt back with my brother and my dad is is a great thing. This is about the only time we get to do it together, at least the way it's worked out the last several years. Okay. Are there are there grizzly bears up there? Uh, it depends on where you're at. Um, the first year in 2006, when we did this first uh, trip, that when we went way up in the Rockies, uh, there were grizzlies in that area, but we went late enough in the fall that they had all started hibernating. Uh, there was the uh, on that trip when my brother shot his big deer. There was uh, three feet of snow on the ground while we were up there. All right. So, uh, so that made made things a little bit more difficult. It certainly made getting around more difficult. Uh, he, he shot his deer down in the bottom of a clear cut down a hill and, uh, the snow was too deep to get our truck down there to it. So he and I ended up having to drag it about a, almost a half a mile, I think out of the bottom of this valley and up to the top where the logging roads were clear enough that we could get the vehicle there. And we were doing that through waist deep snow. Well, our while our dad was uh, just sitting there with the camera taking pictures of us doing all the work. <laughs> well, that's what dads are supposed to do, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I guess he's earned it at that point in his life. You know, I'm I'm looking at some pictures, just a regular Google of Canada, Alberta area, and it looks absolutely gorgeous. I mean, some of these mountains are gigantic in the background. Oh, yeah, they are. I. Uh, I mean, I, I think that first year when we went way up in the Rockies, we were at an elevation of five to 6,000 feet, and you could still see the tops of mountains a few thousand feet up above us. So, you know, they were just too high up to, and too covered in snow to get all the way to the top of them. Right. Uh, but, yeah, it's, it's gorgeous up there. Well, I tell you what, man, let me wish you good luck, um, not only for this upcoming season, but uh, good luck in 2018 when you make your way back to uh, to Canada, and uh, I might have to have you on the show because it sounds to me like you're just uh, a you got maybe have just a pinch of luck, but you're also you're also a good shot. So uh, 
So I'll have to get you on the show, and you can tell us what you killed uh, in 2018 when you go back up there. That sounds great. I look forward to it. And uh, also, thanks for coming on the show and uh, telling your stories with us. Hey, thanks for giving me the opportunity. I appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of our Hunter Profile podcast. And uh, thanks for sticking around this long, guys. And now I'm not going to waste too much of your time. And we're going to get right into a bow review of the Gearhead T24 um, with Zane Goucher from Michigan. So here, here's his take on the Gearhead T24. All right. On the phone with me now is Zane Goucher. How's it going today? Going good. Good, good, good. So uh, before we get into your bow review, why don't you go ahead and tell us where you're from and uh, what you do for a living? All right. I am from uh, Lansing, Michigan, uh, originally out of Maine. Um, but uh, I do field service work for a uh, a calibration company. We work with uh, automotive and aerospace industry uh, heat treaters. So I get to drive around to different places and fix a bunch of equipment. Okay. So you're from Lansing. You're from Lansing, Michigan. Does that mean you're a Michigan State fan? It does. I am a a big Spartan fan. Well, I tell you what, the better team the better team won as far as football is concerned, but I, I think we had your number in basketball this year. Yeah, you did, um, and it was it was close in football. That was a really good football game. That was a great football game. Yes, it was. But you know, we'll put our. I tell you what, we'll put our rivalry aside for this podcast and uh, talk a little bit about bows. How about that? That sounds good to me. All righty. Well, um, like we talked about a little bit before the um, wait before we talk about bows, I jumped the gun. I, I, how did you do this season? Well, actually, uh, I didn't have a season. I'm uh, just getting uh, into bow hunting. Um, I grew up hunting and fishing in Maine, um, mostly rifle hunting. Did some bow shooting as a as a kid, um, but um, my dad passed away last summer uh, after being out here very unexpectedly. Um, and I inherited his bow and, uh, he had never gotten to take a deer with it. So my brother's helping me out, uh, long distance through Maine to here. And, uh, I am now getting into bow hunting and my plan is to take as many deer as I can with my dad's bow. Oh, perfect. What, uh, what kind of bow did your dad pass down to you? Uh, it is a 2014 Hoyt Factor 30. Oh, okay. How do you like it so far? I love it. Uh, the thing is, is great. Um, sentimental value. You probably never get it out of my hands. Right. Right. Okay. Well, you also, um, you also reviewed the new gearhead T24 and we had, uh, we had this, uh, bow review, um, this past week as well. Uh, someone talked about it and they end up re- ended up really liking it. So, uh, I'm excited to hear what you have to say. You know, you, you can never take just one person's word for it. You got to take several people's word for it. So, um, overall, what, uh, what were your thoughts on this bow? Well, I, uh, I thought it was a great bow. Um, really the, the first time I had heard about it, I thought it was, I, I looked it up immediately and it's 
it's a crazy looking bow. Um, not, not your normal style by any means. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, I was really interested in it and, uh, you wanted somebody to review it. So I found a, uh, dealer about 40 minutes away that actually is close to one of my customers. So I, uh, took the opportunity to go over and shoot it. Um, and it's, uh, it's an amazing bow. I, uh, I loved it really. So I, we talked a lot about, we talked a lot about the specs, um, on it, on this previous podcast. Uh, but what, uh, what did you have your draw weight set up as? And, and what do you typically on the bow that you currently have? What are your normal, what are your normal draw lengths and weights that you typically shoot? So I shoot a 29 inch draw and, uh, it's a 60 pound, uh, set right now on my factor 30. Um, and actually the T24 was a 60 pound as well. Um, and they set it up to a 29 inch draw for me, which was what I liked about the T24 is I can actually use my regular release and everything with it. Okay. So compared, you know, you're just getting into archery and you have this bow that you've been shooting for a while now. How, how does it, how does this new gearhead uh, that you tested out compare to, you, you said a Hoyt, right? Yep. Yep. So how does that gearhead compare to the Hoyt that you're shooting? Um, actually, I really loved shooting that gearhead. Um, it was so smooth. Um, you can move the thing around like nothing else. I mean, it's, it's so small that, I mean, you could, spin around in a tree stand with it like like nothing um it's the only bow on the market that i know of that can be swapped between left and right handed um it took us a little bit of time because i'm a lefty uh and the guys at the shop had never had never done had never swapped one over to left-handed uh so it took us a little bit of time to do it but uh it really wasn't all that difficult to do Okay. So, um, was there a, a site that you had to install on it too and, and rest and whatnot? They had a, uh, they had a whisker biscuit rest on it. Um, they had a site on it. We had to move all of it around, uh, to basically to swap the boat to left handed. You flip it upside down and then reinstall everything. Um, <clears throat> but you know, they got it done and it was their first time doing it. It maybe took us 15, 20 minutes or so. Okay. So it fit for, as far as a draw is concerned, uh, did you draw it back before you shot an arrow or was your first time drawing it back with an arrow that you shot? My first time drawing it back was, uh, with an arrow in it. And, uh, we actually had a couple of little hiccups cause I went to draw it back and I could only get like halfway. And, uh, I, I told the guy, I think something's wrong here. You know, it just doesn't seem right. And, uh, when he had set it up, he, <clears throat> he had swapped the, uh, two of the cables. They were still on the right-handed setup and he hadn't swapped them over to left-handed. So we couldn't get the full draw out of it. I gotcha. Well, we got that swapped around and then, um, we went and I drew it back with an arrow and it was, it was a smooth draw. Okay. Um, so on some of these bows, you know, d on the draw cycle, some of the weights up front, 
some of the weights, you know, holding it back towards the end of the draw cycle in the valley. Um, remind us again what that let off was. Um, I believe it's a 75. Okay. I'm not positive on that. All right. Um, so let off was 75 overall. You said, you said the draw was fairly smooth. Go into a little bit more detail about, um, the first couple arrows that you shot and what, what the overall feeling about this bow was. Um, it was, it was really good. I mean, there was really no hand shock. Um, I've got, like I said, on my Hoyt, I've got a little bit of hand shock on it. Nothing, nothing major, but this thing, it was just absolutely dead in your hand. I mean, there's, no wrist sling, no stabilizer, you know, it's just the handle that's there. Um, the handle fit my hand great. And it, it, to me, it was just, it, it was an amazing feeling. Um, I mean, it just absolutely dead. No hand shock, no vibration. Um, what, uh, did you shoot the carbon fiber one or did you shoot the regular? No, it was the regular aluminum. Regular aluminum. Okay. Um, so how did it feel in your hands? I mean, what, it was, was it light? Was it, uh, you know, with those shorter to axle to axle, everybody's always tells me the longer the axle to axle, the more, um, I don't know, the, the more forgiveness and accuracy you're going to have after you shot this a couple of times, did you feel, I mean, with it being much, much shorter than your, I take it your Hoyt's what somewhere around 30, Yep, it's a 30 inch axle okay. to axle. So it's 30 inches axle to axle. This is, you know, six inches less than that. Could you notice a big difference as far as maybe moving it around a little bit? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, moving the thing around was a breeze. Um, and it, it honestly felt a lot lighter. I mean, it, it lifts at three and a half pounds. Um, you know, maybe a little bit heavier with sight and whisker biscuit on there. Not, not much. Um, but it, it felt lighter. I mean, it, it, it was amazing how just the way it's laid out and the way it's balanced. Okay. So you, um, you shot a couple arrows, not a lot of hand shock. Um, what, what else do you have to tell us about this bow? Well, it comes with the pack, as you know. Um, and I did get a chance to, uh, I had them pull out the pack with it. Uh, so I could kind of take a look at that. And um, <clears throat> it seems like it would be a really, really good pack. Um, the bow just slides right down inside of it. Um, you have three options on the pack, uh, the 18, the 20, and the 24 model. Um, with the 24-inch, you can only get the 24-inch bag. Um, but that's the one I would buy, even if I got the 18 or the 20-inch model anyway. Just because you've got the extra room in it. Okay. Um, so with that 24-inch pack, you said, does that bow fit all the way inside of it? Yep. Okay. Yep. You uh, you take the sight off and then slide the bow right down inside. And then uh, from the looks of it, uh, I mean, there's there's plenty more room in there for gear for a backpack hike for sure. So what did you say that you have to take off to slide it into the pack? I I believe you'd probably have to take the, the sight off. Oh, okay. I mean, it, does that stick if you out have a small sight, what's that? Does that stick out a ways on the sight? 
that was on your bow? I mean, did it stick yeah. out ways? I mean, it, it stuck out like the normal off the front of the bow. Um, I know uh, the last reviewer had said he did one, and they had a sight that went behind the riser on it. Okay. Uh, on that, I I don't believe you'd have you couldn't have to take it off. Um, but on the normal sights, uh, you might be able to get it in there. So that uh, that's something that I probably, as a hunter, would not be willing to do. If I'm going to have a bow that is designed to put be put into a backpack. I would want my sight to go in there as well, because just imagine going up into your tree stand or your blind and then having to put the sight back on your bow. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, what I would, I mean, if I was going to use the pack, I would be on like a backcountry hunt is what I would think. Right. Um, right. And I haven't done one. I know you and Mark did one this year. Um, but uh, I would guess that you have your bow packed anyway while you're packing in, correct? Well, I had my I had my bow on the exterior of my pack, obviously, going in. Because as far as a Western hunt is concerned, we ha- I had to pack in all my food, my tent, my sleeping bags, all my – Everything that I needed for those five days came in my backpack, and my bow would have gone into the um, would have went into the or on the exterior of the pack with some of my other supplies, like my tent. So um, let me pull this pack up real quick. The picture that they show of this pack is on the bow is kind of. Sh- Looks like it's maybe strapped to the exterior some way, but it looks, I know, well, yeah, it does kind of look like it's strapped there. Um, maybe it's just resting against it, but and yeah. anyway, I think that's a great concept that, you know, Hey, you get a pack with this bow because it's so small. You can put, you know, you can put everything in there, but for a tree stand hunter, my, and especially in the cooler temperatures, when I'm, when I'm taking my two weeks vacation, I'm going to, I'm going to have all my clothing and all my accessories I need in my pack um, because if the bow takes up a lot of space, I don't know, did you you play, did you put the bow in the pack? I mean, is there any space left in it after the bow for like clothing? Oh yeah. There's definitely space left in there. Um, Like I said, I I think there'd probably be enough um, for, for gear and food and everything to do a backpack hunt with. And then what about, uh, like exterior straps, if you wanted to strap like, uh, um, some extra clothing or, um, I don't know, oh, I guess if you're going to, if you're going to have your bow in your pack, that means like, cause I just think about the way I hunt and I don't know how, how you hunt. If you go out for an all day sit, you got, uh, tons of crap, like food, water, um, and ec- maybe some extra clothing just in case it's. You know, just in case it, the weather changes, you get hot, you get cold, and that kind of right. stuff. So, yeah, I mean, if if all that stuff can fit in the pack, I and like like I said, I haven't had a chance to shoot this bow yet, and I haven't had a chance to. Uh, it's my one regret was I saw this bow at the ATA show this year, and I looked at it, and I just it never even registered for me to shoot it until I actually started <laughs> talking, you know, to the guys, and I was like, hey, you need to shoot this bow, so. 
So yeah, it's um, I'd like I'd like to have a little more time with it. You know, um, like I said, once once we got it swapped around, I didn't have a whole lot of time left on my lunch break. Um, but I I tried to get as best the feel for it as I could. Right. With you being new to bow hunting, you know, and you shot the aluminum, which uh, retails for r- roughly thirteen hundred dollars. Uh, uh, what twelve ninety nine. Yep. Is that a bow that is outside of your budget or is that a bow that if you were going to buy a new bow that y- you would pay 1300 for it? I would pay $1,300 for that. And honestly, if I was in the market for a bow, I would have bought that one. Okay. Okay. So um, two things that I've heard so far is, <laughs> with this bow is people are, are blown away by how it shoots. So, you know, I think I think I want to try to get one more person, I think, on the show to talk about this bow to see if it then you can start saying maybe it's a trend. But other than, right. you know, other than, you know, is there anything else about this bow that you liked or maybe or didn't like about it? Is there some anything that, you know, yeah, you're 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 happy with one category or several categories of it, but maybe there's another category that wasn't uh you know, you weren't so happy with? If the one thing I wasn't happy with, and, and I, I tried it once, uh, if you get the T18 or the 220, the T20, and you have a longer draw length, you have to buy their special releases, which is an extended release, or use an extended V-loop. Um, <clears throat> I did try one with the extended release, and it just... I imagine you could get used to it, but it was really hard to find any of my anchor points. Okay. I got you. Um, so, and that would be my only complaint on the smaller two, which is why I really wanted to try the T24 because it, it goes out to a 29 inch draw. Yeah. So on that, on that, uh, T24, where was your, did, was there a peep site on that bow? Yep. They, uh, they had, taken it off the right-handed side and we reinstalled it on the left-handed side. Okay. So was there, how far from the cam is your peep sight? On my Hoyt? No, on your, well, on, you know, on a regular bow, 30 inch bow, it's probably like six to eight inches down from where the cam's at. You know, it's, it's where it should be. Now, because this is a shorter axle to axle and you're still drawing back 29 pounds, that means that peep sight's going to be closer to the cam. Where, how far, you know, and I think on the 18, if you're, if you want to draw 29 inches, you know, you got to have that big D loop on it or even the 20, you got to have that big uh, D loop on it. And I don't know if you're able to shoot a peep sight in it because the, uh, because the draw, your draw length would be so far. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure on that. And honestly, I, want to say the peep was probably uh i didn't measure it i I guess i didn't really think to i would say it was um maybe like five inches away from the cam okay somewhere in there five inches okay yeah so not, not nothing too drastic where it's like button right up against it no it wasn't it definitely wasn't there's room to serve in a peep and um it it was it was really comfortable um, when I when I drew back. You know, he we adjusted the peep to right where it needed to be, okay. um, and there was there was plenty of room there. Now you shot it. Was it quiet? 
it's amazingly quiet. I, I couldn't believe, uh, how quiet it was with no dampeners, nothing, um, no stabilizer or anything. It was very quiet. Good. All right. Well, anything else that you want to say about this bow? Um, no, well, I mean, I know it looks crazy, um, but if you get the chance, you know, I would go out and shoot one. And uh, if you're in the market, be prepared to be surprised. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's uh, good advice. I mean, I, you know, it's one of those things where I wonder how much of how much brand has to do with it. You know, Gearhead is a new brand. Obviously, it, it would take some time to, you know, establish this brand into, you know, the hunting industry, just like it would be to introduce, you know, Hey, my company is called blah, blah company. And, uh, we make trucks and then you have to compete against, you know, Ford, Chevy, Dodge, you know, all the established companies. And, uh, I wonder, I wonder if, cause I know they don't have a lot of dealers right now. Cause there's, I don't think no. my closest dealer is four hours away from where I live. Wow. Yeah. See, I lost out. I mean, uh, the shop that I went to was like 45 minutes from here from my house. Um, but it happened to be right down the street from one of my customers. So I was over there and I just took advantage. Um, but yeah, they're definitely very limited. Um, I would like to see them spread. I mean, I hope they stick around because, uh, in a few more years, if I'm in the market or, uh, you know, I end up planning a Western backpack hunt or something, I would, uh, I would be considering it. All right. Well, I, I tell you what, Zane, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate your time and, uh, going in reviewing this bow. Um, so thanks again. All right. Thanks for having me, Dan. There you have it. Two podcasts for the price of one today. I want to thank Adam and I want to thank Zane for coming on the show, taking time out of their day and, uh, you know, sharing some stories and information with us. Uh, real quick, because we've already gone way overboard today, I want to say thank you to Exodus Trail Cameras for supporting the show. And uh, if you guys want more information, be sure to check out their uh, trail cameras at exodusoutdoorgear.com. And don't forget to enter in the number nine fingers no spaces when checking out uh, and making a purchase and uh, you'll receive $20 off your purchase. So again, thank you guys for tuning in. Thanks to Exodus and uh, make sure you guys are following me on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, by the way, Facebook, real quick, I'm going to start doing some live feeds probably once a week, maybe twice a week, depending on uh, what kind of information I have to share with you. It could be something as simple as showing off one of my favorite sheds or actually talking with uh, someone who might have some strategy tips and tricks for you. So, um, stay tuned for that. I'm going to try to post those in advance. So, um, more people can attend those. Um, it's kind of hard if you don't know when they're going to be. So I'm going to do my best to post times and dates when I'm going to do those. And uh, that's about it. I'm going to quit talking, let you guys get back to your life. Thank you very much. And remember to wear your damn safety harness.